O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable ever in your sight. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in the midst of your journey in a dark night of the soul? If not, I'm surprised. But perhaps you found yourself driving one night in an unfamiliar place in the dark. And a curve comes up unexpected. It's a frightening place to be. I, as I prepared my sermon this morning, was reflecting on my own dark night of the soul. When I finished seminary, it was 2010, and the economic downturn had found its way to the church. Things were tough. Positions were not available. Um, I took... I took the first job that made itself available to me, and boy, did I come to regret it. I served a very difficult four years in a parish um, and found myself burned out, exhausted, and hurting. I didn't do a very good job of exercising boundaries, and I worked way too hard, and my congregation let me. I found myself burned out, and at the end of four years, I moved on to the next place and served an intentional interim for a congregation for a year as they were in transition from one pastor to the next. And at the end of that year, I was still very burned out, and there were still very much no positions available. I moved back to St. Louis, where I had attended seminary, and I was hurting And I wondered, God, where are you? What are you doing? I still had to pay my student loan payments every month, but I didn't have a check to match them to come with it. I was working as a barista at Starbucks. And I was so hurt. And that hurt gave way to anger. I remember one afternoon, I finished my work shift and I got on my bicycle and I was riding. That was something that I was doing a lot of at the time, probably about 35, 40 miles a day on my bike. And those became um, profound seasons of conversation with the Lord. I spoke a whole lot and the Lord listened even more. But I wanted him to speak. I wanted him to speak very clearly to me and I wanted him to say, hey, it's all over. We got the next thing for you. You're in a good spot again. That's not what the Lord had to say to me. The Lord began to ask me, Todd, do you regret? Do you regret taking that parish in South Carolina? Yes, I do, Lord. Well, Todd, do you regret going to seminary and taking out all those student loans? Yes, I do, Lord. Do you regret going to Bible college in preparation for seminary? I sure do. I wish I had found something more marketable that I could work with. And on the questions went, do you regret? Do you regret? Yes, I regret. Yes, I regret. I was so hurt. I was so angry. and I felt so abandoned by God. And then the question, Todd, do you regret walking with me through the journey of your life? And in that moment, in my hurt and my anger, I said, yes, I do. I wish that I'd just lived it my way. And then my heart sank. Because as much as I could have regretted everything, at the end of the day, I couldn't regret that couldn't regret sharing my life with Jesus and walking with him in the midst of it. See, I discovered in that moment, though I had a real 
faith. I believed in God and I believed in the gospel, but I'm not sure I believed that it was true for me when I looked at my circumstances. And in that dark night of the soul, God helped me to see what was really important. See, I built up this house of my faith. And the problem was that in the foundation, I had windows and doors. Windows and doors are good things to have in your house, but they're not the foundation. Friends, the foundation of our faith is union with Jesus Christ. That when God looks upon us, he no longer sees us miserable sinners that we are, but he sees his son, Jesus Christ, in whom he is well pleased, and he takes delight in each one of us. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. I so enjoyed working through each of the lessons for our worship service today, and I was blessed to find how they all came together in unison. And I believe that what God has to say to us this morning from his word is even though we feel alone at times, God is with us. So we should not live as though we are all alone. Because God has united us with Jesus Christ, he's equipped and empowered us to live by faith alone. So first, I want to spend some time going through Genesis 22, which was our Old Testament lesson. Now, if you're like me, you've probably heard this lesson preached upon quite a bit and taught quite a bit. Some of the preaching and teaching I've heard on it has been exceptionally helpful and some of it not at all. I remember a friend of mine was uh, coming to Indiana, where I lived for a season, to visit a seminary, which I, I will not name. And I went with that friend and we sat in a class and the professor lectured on Genesis 22. And the professor said, well, here we have another example why the word is errant. Because God would never tell us to make that kind of a sacrifice like he told supposedly Abraham to sacrifice his son. Because God is love, right? Friends, that is a faulty foundation, as faulty as the windows and doors I had built my faith upon as well. This is the solid foundation of our faith. And what it says to us is that God told Abraham to go and to take his son and to sacrifice him on that mountain. And the question we need to ask is, why? What on earth was God doing? This was most certainly of all of Abraham's dark nights of the soul, the darkest imaginable we think about it in context. Some 30 years earlier, Abraham was a man by a different name, Abram, which meant God of a multitude. And in Genesis 22, we can go back and see how God called Abram. He said, Abram, I want you to leave your father's house and your father's land. I want you to go away to a place that you've never seen before. And when you go, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. If you recall Ben's sermon last week, you may remember the great commission that he preached. Where Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey what I have commanded you. Well, friends, that is just a re-communication of the very first call that God gave to Abram right there in Genesis chapter 12. And Abram got up and he went. 
He hadn't seen the land that God had promised, but he had faith. And we're told later in the New Testament that God accounted that faith unto him as righteousness. Amen. So Abram gets up and he goes along his journey. And I can just picture him stopping at a watering hole somewhere along the path in Canaan or perhaps on his way to Egypt through his wanderings. And he introduces himself to another stranger who's watering his animals as Abram, father of multitudes. And they say, wow, a father of multitudes. How many kids do you have? None. He has none. And he continued to wonder. And then we see later in the story, by Genesis 17, God actually changes Abram, his name from Abram, father of multitudes, to Abraham, which means father of nations, even more. Imagine the heartache, perhaps even the shame that must have filled his heart as he said, you know, I left my home, I left everything to come and do this, and I've not had any children, and I've not been granted a land. Was it worth it? I wonder if Abram, in his own conversation with God and his journey, said, I regret following the Lord. We see in Genesis 17, God's promise is expanded. He explains more what he plans to do in 17.7 when he says, I'm going to give you an offspring. And I'm going to be your God and I'm going to be their God. That's part of the covenant promise that I'm making to you. And then he explains further in 17.15 in the covenant of circumcision that he's going to give to Abram a son. Now, Abram already had a son, right? Ishmael, who was the son of Sarah's handmaiden. But God promised him that he would give him a son through Sarah. Now, Sarah was in her 70s at this point, at least. And she laughed, we may recall, from one of our recent lessons in past weeks. How in the world can I bear a son at my advanced age? She's been barren her whole life. And yet God said, I will come back to you in one year and you will have a son. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens in 1810. So by the time we get to chapter 21 and Isaac is born, Abraham finally looks at this beautiful child and sees the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him. God told him that he would be a father of many nations. This is the fulfillment of that promise through this child. Imagine his confusion a chapter later. Isaac's a little boy. And God tells him, I want you to go up to the mountain and I want you to sacrifice this child. But God, this is the one that you gave me as the fulfillment of your promise. What in the world are you doing? And yet he goes. Abram couldn't possibly have seen what lay in store for him. He moved forward somewhat blindly, but he moved forward. The first point of my sermon today um, of the ways that God equips and empowers us to journey through the dark night of the soul, to do it by faith, is that he's given us stories, stories of his faithfulness to others, which remind us of his faithfulness and equips and empowers us to move forward in faithfulness today. And this is exactly one of those stories. One of the very significant things that I found as I went through this passage, Genesis 22, I translated it from the Hebrew and prayed over it and meditated upon it, is the consistency of vision 
the words for to see, to perceive, to look. It's just all over the place in this chapter. In verse 4, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw. In verse 7, his son Isaac is looking and they've left the servants and the donkey behind and Isaac's carrying the wood and Abraham's got the fire and he says, Father, look, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, where's the sacrifice? Now, Abraham's response to him, the next verse over, verse 8, he says, God will provide in our English translation, but in the Hebrew, it actually says, God sees. God sees our circumstance. And it's with the faithful assumption that if God sees our need, he's going to provide what we need to follow him in faithfulness. Then we get to verse 11. And the Lord calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham. And in our translation, it says, here am I. But that word says, look at me in Hebrew. Look, do you see me? And of course, Abram turns around the next verse and he sees a ram in the thicket. And then at the conclusion of this, Abraham names the place of the sacrifice, Yahweh, Yireh. Again, God sees and he provides. See, Abraham had no way of looking ahead into the future and seeing what God was going to do in the midst of this crisis, this dark night. And yet his faith gave him the necessary vision to look and to see beyond his circumstances and to walk forward in faith. So we have stories of God's faithfulness to others that remind us that God will also be faithful to us. If he was faithful to Abraham through those 30 years of wondering and providing to him a son to fulfill his covenant, we read further in the story and we see the great nation that comes out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If God was faithful to Abraham, he must surely be faithful for us today as well. In addition to the stories, God has given us a Savior. I love this passage, Genesis 22. It is a shadow or a type. In systematic theology, we talk about it as typology. In other words, God shows us in the Old Testament people who are doing things that are a foretaste of the great thing he's getting ready to do in the coming of the Christ, Jesus. It's not to say that Isaac was like Jesus, but that when Jesus came, he was like Isaac. That's how typologies work. We see that God, seeing Abraham's faithfulness, said, Stop! Don't sacrifice your son. I've seen your faith, that it actually propels you forward into action, into faithful, good works. And because of that, you are righteous. And God provided for him a sacrifice in the ram. Well, that ram itself was a type. It was a sacrifice that pointed forward to the coming sacrifice. The author of Hebrews tells us that the priest would go into the temple day after day and year after year and make sacrifices for the remission of sins. But it says when Christ entered into the temple, he offered himself up once for all as a sacrifice. Never again would a sacrifice need to be made. Those sacrifices pointed to Christ. So we have a Savior who is actually the one who makes our covenant with God secure. We see throughout Genesis, every time that God made a promise to Abraham, what would happen? They'd go find an animal and what? They'd sacrifice it. 
it signified, it sealed that what they had agreed to one another was good and true. Now hold on to that because we're going to come back to it. If you look at our psalm lesson today, Psalm 89, it's ripe with the language of this kind of covenant and promise. In verses 2 and 14, we have the language of the steadfast love of the Lord. Well, steadfast love is a wonderful concept, but in the Hebrew, what it really means is covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. Right? It's not love as our culture speaks of love today. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling that says, hey, I'm attracted to you right now. It's covenant-keeping love. It's the kind of love that God is talking about in marriage. The kind of love that says, hey, I don't like you so much right now, but I've made promises, and I'm going to do what's right for you. That's the kind of covenant-keeping love that God promised in Genesis that the psalmist is pointing to and remembering. It propels him forward into faithfulness today. We have the benefit that Abraham didn't have back in Genesis 22. Abraham could only look forward in hopes of a Christ who was yet to come. We can look back into the Gospels and see the Christ who has come, who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We have even more story than Abraham had. Not only do we have the story of Christ, but we actually have union with him. And this is precisely what Paul is addressing in the epistle lesson today. In Romans chapter 6, he says that if we have been buried with Christ in a death like his, we shall surely be raised to him with a resurrection like his as well. Friends, this is union with Christ. It's what I was speaking of earlier, that when God looks upon us, he no longer sees us wretched sinners that we are, but he sees Christ, his son, faithful and beloved. And he takes delight in us. We're united with Christ in his suffering and death in the hope and the covenantal promise that we'll be united with him as well in his resurrection This is what empowers us to do what Paul is encouraging us to do in Romans chapter 6 and what Christ himself encouraged us to do in Matthew chapter 10, which is to move forward living lives of obedience, to setting behind our fleshly sinful desires and to offering up our lives as a living sacrifice to God. In terms of theology, what, what people call this is double imputation. Right? That's a pretty complex term, but let me tell you what it means. When Christ hung upon the cross, he took upon himself our sin. Our guilt and our curse was taken off of us and it was imputed. It was placed upon him. He took the curse that was ours. The second part of imputation, which is also wonderful and beautiful, is that when Christ did that and we were united with him, His righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his faithfulness was then imputed onto us. It's why God can look at us and say, well done, good and faithful sinner, despite the fact if you're like me, you keep on sinning. We don't want to, but we've been united with Christ. And it's his faithfulness and his obedience imputed to us that equips and enables us to live lives of faithfulness today. Are you struggling with indwelling sin? Christ's righteousness has been given to you. You don't have to be obedient on your own. The power to be obedient has been given to you in your union with Christ. So now the question, how have we been united with Christ? 
Well, by faith. That's what Paul would like us to understand and take away from his letter to the church in Rome. Sometimes it's hard to believe. That's all it takes, is to believe on Christ. There was a man in the turn of the 20th century who had one son who he loved deeply. This man was a lover of art, and his own love of art was given to his son as well. They shared a love for painting and for sculpture and for beautiful things. This man's son, as a young man, ended up joining the military during World War I. He went and he served in France. He served almost to the very end when one day he was killed by gas. The man was devastated. He lost his only son. A few months later, at the end of the war, a young man came and knocked on his door and told him that he was the best friend of his son, that they had sat in that bunker together for months on end together. And he said that he always had such um, delight in the artistic abilities of his son. And he had a gift for him. His son had drawn a self-portrait of himself in the bunker. And his military buddy wanted to return this drawing to the father. Several decades later, the father died and he had no heir to pass along all of his wealth and his incredible collection of paintings and artwork. And so an auction was held and art collectors from all over the world came together because they knew this man had the most fantastic collection. So they gathered together. The room was full of people and filled with even more anticipation of the wonderful works that were going to be sold that day. The auctioneer came to the auction desk and he introduces the very first piece for sale that day. It was the self-portrait drawn by the man's son decades earlier. He says, we'd like to start the bidding at $5. Silence. All right, well, let's, let's get this going. If someone will just buy this piece, we can move on to some of the other work. $5? Four dollars. Will anyone take it for four dollars? Three? So the auctioneer finally got down to one one dollar. He said, this piece has to sell before we can sell any of the other pieces. And so finally, one gentleman out in the crowd, ready to get things moving, lifted up his paddle and said, I'll take it for one dollar. The auctioneer banged his gavel on the desk and said, sold for one dollar. And that concludes the auction today. Everyone gasped. What? what about all of the other artwork? To which the auctioneer responded, well, it was very clear in the will that was left behind. Whoever takes the son takes everything. Friends, that is the message of union with Jesus Christ. Whoever takes the son takes everything. We get to celebrate in the full gift of his inheritance because we've been united with him. And how have we been united? Well, Paul tells us through baptism. So this is my third point. We have stories. We have a Savior. But lastly, we have sacraments. Sacraments that are given to us in the language of the 39 articles as signs and seals of God's covenant of redemption. What does that mean? 
Well, a sign, it's like if I'm on a road trip and I'm driving down the road and I see a sign that says Cracker Barrel in five miles. Well, that probably means that in five miles down the road, I'm going to find a Cracker Barrel where I can stop and have lunch, right? The sacraments in the same way are a sign of God's covenant promises to us. They point to what God has promised in our inheritance. But they're also seals unto us. And what does that mean? Well, in old days before newspapers and television, people didn't know what their king would look like. And their king would send out a decree to the people that he was going to collect a tax or that he was raising up an army. And how would the people know that the letter that was being posted in town was actually a message from the king? Well, the king would pour wax upon the letter and he would take his ring that bore his seal. It's the only thing that had that seal. And he would punch it down into the wax. And the people could look at that seal and they could know that this was really authentically from the king. So the sacraments serve us as signs and seals of God's promises, of his grace that equips and enables us to move forward in the dark night of the soul in faith. We have baptism. But today, in particular, we celebrate the Eucharist. And I tell you, just as surely as you can see and touch and taste the bread and the wine, God's promises are signed and sealed unto you. So not only do we have stories from the past, not only do we have a Savior with whom we're united, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, but we actually have something tangible we can hold on to that proves to us that God's promises are true, that equips and enables us to walk forward in faith. I encourage you this morning as we celebrate it and as you partake, remember this, just as you see it, you touch it, you taste it. Christ and all of his benefits are yours. And he's equipping and empowering you to live lives of faithfulness. Amen.